Our Bible readings this evening are all from Luke's account of the death of Jesus. First, the night before Jesus died, as he gathered with his disciples to eat the Passover meal. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you, before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Amen. Luke describes the meal Jesus shared with his disciples the night before he died. It was their last meal the Last Supper, together before his death. It is no coincidence that this Last Supper was the Passover meal, a familiar experience for them, as every year at this time they remembered the events of the Passover. The Passover recalled the events of the Exodus, when God delivered the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt establishing a covenant with them, making them his very own people and leading them to the land of promise. Why the name Passover? The decisive event that persuaded Pharaoh to let God's people go was the angel of death sweeping through the land of Egypt, killing the firstborn. God's people were protected from the angel of death by sacrificing a lamb and smearing its blood on the doorstops of their homes 
a sacrifice of blood to God that meant the angel of death passed over their homes. And this Passover meal was a memorial meal, a meal of remembrance recalling that decisive event when God rescued his people, delivering them out of slavery. That's what Jesus and his disciples were remembering at this Passover meal. Yet this was no Passover like ever before. As Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Every eye in that room must have been on Jesus. As he speaks about himself, as the sacrificial lamb, who would through his death make a new covenant, a new covenant through blood again, but a new covenant through his shed blood and broken body. And what a glorious, different, better covenant it was to be, as we shall see. And so this last supper became the Lord's Supper, the memorial meal that we will share together at the end of the service. The atmosphere in that room must have been palpable. The disciples did not yet understand what their master was saying they would come to understand both the full glory and the full horror of what he was saying, but not as yet. And at Jesus' words, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Surely there would have been tears in the room. As these disciples loyal to Jesus, men like Peter and John, heard their master say he was going to die. There may have been fear and tears from his loyal disciples, though loyal Peter would betray him and all would desert him. But there was betrayal of a different nature in that room, sheer evil in the heart of Judas. But behold, Jesus said, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. And they questioned, which one of us? Now, as we leave this Last Supper and continue to follow the dramatic events as they unfold, where are we? Or who are we in that room? Are we disciples, followers of Jesus? who by God's grace clearly understand what is going on. As we sit here, do we clearly understand what Jesus is saying? This is my body, which is broken for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant 
in my blood. Do we understand that he is speaking to us about his death for us? Where are we? Who are we in that room? Maybe we're confused, like Jesus' disciples were that night. Perhaps when we sing our next hymn, you could pause and pray that God would make what is unclear clear to you. And is there anyone here whose heart is hard toward Jesus like Judas? To reject Jesus is to betray him. To reject Jesus on Jesus' own terms is to betray him. Think carefully on the consequences. Where are you? And who are you in that room? To us all, Jesus offers us his body and his blood to make a covenant between us and God. Our next reading follows on from what we've just heard. And following the Passover meal, late that same evening, on the night before his death, Jesus goes up with his disciples to the Mount of Olives and in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you read with me on your sheets, and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Following the meal, the first Lord's Supper, Jesus and his disciples take a short walk, probably less than a mile, down the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. The other gospel writers tell us into a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Close to midnight at the dead of night, what is described in these verses is deeply shocking. And being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. This really is Jesus' agony in the garden. And here we see vividly, as Jesus saw vividly, the extent of suffering that he would endure on the cross. This is the extent of suffering he needed to endure in order for us to be forgiven, to be saved 
to be made right with God. It is not more than he needed to endure. It is exactly what he needed to endure. His suffering shows us the terrible problem we face and the terrible danger we are in without him. And yet it shows us the amazing grace and mercy of God and Jesus to go through with it. In order to understand the Christian gospel, the good news of salvation, you need to understand the cross. And the heart of understanding the cross is understanding that an exchange takes place. Jesus takes our place. He is made who we are so we can be made who he is. We are sinful, unrighteous through and through, deserving the judgment, the wrath of God. Jesus is sinless, righteous through and through, deserving no judgment, no wrath. And he takes our place. The Apostle Paul writes in one of his letters, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul is precise in his language. Jesus was made sin. He became sin. It's not that Jesus took our sin as if it were resting on his shoulders, or he were carrying our sin in his arms. When Jesus was made sin, he was made sin in a very real way. Now, I'm not saying that he became a sinner because he never sinned. But he was made sin in such a deep and profound way that the great exchange of the gospel could take place. He was made who we are that we might become who he is. He who is righteous was made unrighteous so that we who are unrighteous can be made righteous. It is a great and a glorious and a terrible exchange. And as Jesus saw what must happen on the cross, as he contemplated the reality of becoming sin, whatever exactly that means, it horrified him. It caused him to sweat blood. Was it because of the amount or intensity of sin he would have to bear? I don't think so. So isn't his reaction over the top? Surely our sinfulness is not that bad, that dark, that evil, and that frightening. Except it is. In Jesus' reaction, we see the awful reality 
of sin. The prospect of being made sin horrified him. And even more than that, the prospect of the wrath of God terrified him. Jesus not only became sin for us, he bore the wrath of God for us. The wrath or judgment of God, the just action of a holy God for sinful humanity. God needs to satisfy his anger towards sinful humanity. Now, please don't react against that. Don't dismiss it as the mind of an arrogant, despotic God. Who are any of us to judge God or reason as to his unreasonableness? And if you are riling against this, then remember that God poured out his wrath on Jesus instead of you. All he asks of you is to accept that Jesus had to endure this, that you will not have to endure this. As Jesus contemplated being made sin, as he contemplated bearing God's wrath, his agony in the garden, his agony in the garden went still deeper and darker than that. For on the cross the next day, he would cry out to his father, why have you forsaken me? And on the cross, Jesus' awareness of what was happening would be lost. For to go through it knowing all would be well in the end, he would not have reached into the depths of our sinful human nature. He had to forgo that knowledge of the goodness of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was no answer to that terrible cry of dereliction as he hung on the cross. God was silent. And what does it mean that God was silent? It means God was not there. Why was God not there as Jesus died? Because Jesus had to endure hell as he died on the cross. He had to get to that point. He had to be helplessly and hopelessly in hell as he hung on the cross and experienced the silence of God as he cried and the anguish of his soul for God to help him. It's not that God heard him and ignored him. God did not hear him because God the Son was in hell. And God the Father was not there. And in the terrible agony of the silence, separation, and forsakenness, Jesus, who had become in some way a vile sinner, was experiencing the wrath of God. And at that point, on the cross, salvation was achieved for all who will believe. Forgiveness 
was sealed in his blood, a new covenant made between God and humanity. And that is the agony that Jesus had a foretaste of in the Garden of Gethsemane. I wonder if you've ever asked yourself why God allowed Jesus to go through a preview of what he would endure on the cross. Why? Twice within 12 hours. Jesus had to experience and come through temptation. Adam was tempted in the Garden of Eden and sinned. Jesus was tempted. The second Adam was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane and did not. Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness at the start of his ministry. Satan's temptation back then, Messiahship without a cross. Jesus had resisted Satan's temptation then. Luke tells us back in the early chapters of his gospel that Satan departed from Jesus until an opportune time. And that opportune time is here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was not just the horror of what he would have to endure that led Jesus to ask the Father if there was any way the cup of wrath could be taken from him. It was the devil tempting him not to go through with it. Is there another way? Has temptation behind it? Yet not my will but yours is the Son of God resisting temptation. I expect that Satan would have tempted Jesus in the garden that night with every conceivable temptation. Every sinful thought would have come into his heart to tempt him. And the battle Jesus fought with Satan and temptation in the garden was a battle that all of human history and salvation depended upon. It was so intense that an angel was sent by God to strengthen Jesus, yet after the angel strengthened him, tears like blood fell from his head, yet Jesus never fell. And this was Satan's last throw of the dice, his last battle. And the cross would seal Satan's eternal feet. In the garden, the disciples are asleep. When he rose from prayer, Jesus came to them and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Where are we? Is there anyone asleep? Or half asleep? Or are we alert and conscious, clear as to the significance of what is happening? Well, the next hymn, in a moment, will answer that question. Listen to yourself as to how you sing this hymn. Can you sing it? Can you really sing it? What Jesus contemplated in the Garden of Gethsemane that he would be forsaken by God on the cross experiencing hell, that is what the unbeliever will endure for all eternity. 
So it matters if we are awake or asleep. Perhaps you are being awakened to the seriousness of what it will mean to be God-forsaken for eternity. Well, if so, young or old, use this hymn to sing your way to safety through faith in Jesus. Following his trial before the Jewish religious council, Pilate, the Roman governor, and Herod, the Jewish king, Pilate delivered Jesus to be crucified. This is Luke's account of the death of Jesus and those who died alongside him. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving a due reward of our deeds but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances and the woman who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Luke's account of the crucifixion focuses far less than the other Gospels on the suffering and death of Jesus. He talks about the darkness over the land, which is a sign of the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus, but doesn't mention Jesus' cry of forsakenness. That's not because the suffering of Jesus is less important for Luke. His description of Jesus in the garden is where he deals with 
the agony of suffering. Luke's focus at the crucifixion is on the victory of the cross. Let me just read a couple of verses again. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain in the temple represented separation of God from people. It was like a massive no-entry sign, signaling loud and clear the impossibility for sinful people like us to be in God's presence. Only one man, the high priest, once a year was allowed behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies. But when Jesus died at that moment, the way into the presence of God is opened up to everyone as the temple curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom. The shed blood of Jesus had made the perfect and final payment for sin. No more need for sacrifices. No more need for priests or rituals or religion. Jesus' death opens up free, unfettered access to God for all who believe. This is the new covenant sealed in his blood. It means we can know God personally. Anyone can. God is approachable. Moreover, we are constantly in his presence because the Holy Spirit of Jesus lives within us. Religion and ritual and buildings play no part in access to God. We are invited to walk through that curtain into a relationship with him to love and obey and serve him. As Jesus dies, his own relationship with God is secured. Calling out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. Now, what is the extent of the victory Jesus achieved for the believer. A phrase that is often used to describe all that Jesus achieves for the believer through his death is full atonement. Full atonement. Think of it like this. Imagine a priceless picture is stolen. The thief is caught and punished. And so the penalty for the crime has been paid. But the picture is still lost. It is only when the picture is restored that the full work of restoration is done. And yet even then, the full work of restoration is still not done because there has been grief and heartache and the pain of loss. That illustration helps us understand what full atonement is. God needs the penalty for sin to be paid, but he wants the picture of marred humanity restored. He wants humanity remade in his image, 
And he wants all the pain of our existence in this world to be left in this world. Full atonement means the achievement of the cross with respect to our sin. Because Jesus died, the Christian has been delivered from the penalty for sin. There is for you, believer, no wrath or condemnation now. But the cross not only achieves deliverance from the penalty for sin, also the power of sin. When the righteousness of Christ indwells you in the person of his spirit, you are no longer enslaved to sin, but have the power not just to battle with it, but overcome it. A process that will be complete when Christ comes again and you will be free from the presence of sin in the new creation. All of that saved from the penalty, saved from the power, and saved from sin's presence achieved when Christ breathed his last. Full atonement not only encompasses our sin, but our suffering. With every passing year, as a pastor, you pause at this moment. Jesus' death means that for the believer, there is an eternity free of suffering. Salvation from sin and salvation from suffering. And salvation from all the effects of sin and suffering in our lives. The grief, the loss, the tears. Full atonement with respect to sin and suffering and the effects of sin and suffering. Now a good deal of that while achieved at the cross will not be our experience until the new creation but now in this life, it keeps a different perspective. I sat with a couple last night and said, whatever tomorrow brings for the Christian, there is never hopelessness and never despair. And at the summit of full atonement is the death of death. Jesus died to conquer death. For the believer, there is the assurance of resurrection to everlasting life. Good Friday services are services for old hymns. I think that's because I'm getting old. Here's a hymn from Philip Bliss on full atonement. Too hard to sing, so we'll quote it. Bearing sin and scoffing. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. That's the penalty paid. Here's the next verse. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. In other words, your and my perfection in the end. Hallelujah. What a saviour. 
Philip Bliss needed one more verse, so I've written it. To fuse these two wonderful things together. Pardoned through the blood of Christ. Perfect through his righteousness. Full atonement. Yes, for me. Hallelujah. What a saviour. That's what the cross achieves. What a saviour. What a victory. And the last thing Luke leaves us with this Good Friday is all around the cross of Christ. There are reactions. There are those who mock. There are those who wring their hands in the wrong way. There are those who look on with the devotion of religious experience and say, what a wonderfully powerful example of the end of a life. And there was one man on his left and there was one man on his right, both nailed to crosses. This one believed. This one rejected. With minutes left, Jesus said today, you will be with me in paradise. And the man who had supervised the execution of the Son of God looked up and said, surely this man was innocent. What outrageous grace at this critical point in all of human history. So where are we? Where are we in that scene? Where do we stand? Jesus hangs on the cross with outstretched arms. What do you need to do? Think of that thief on the cross next to him. What could he do? Where could he go to perform some act of righteousness? What could he do with his hands? He couldn't move. He could barely breathe. And he looked at Jesus and said, I believe. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. That is the most powerful illustration in the Bible of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And if you thought it isn't, think of the Roman centurion who looked up, the man who supervises execution. And God in his grace. Maybe some of Jesus' blood fell on him and cleansed him from every sin. Hallelujah, what a saviour.